So tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through Daniel's prayer for us. I know normally on Sunday evenings, I, we don't read it at the beginning. I just kind of read and ramble, so I, I work through the passage throughout the night. But tonight, we're going to hit it kind of differently. I'm going to read the whole prayer first, starting in verse 3, and down through verse 19. Daniel turned his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name or to the kings or our princes or our fathers and to all the people of the lands. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery they've committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws, which he set before his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that he's done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we, are, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because of your city and your people, which are called by your name. When Martin Luther, 1535 or so, went to a barber for a haircut, the barber had a choice to make. The barber, you see, was in an interesting position. He was in a difficult time financially. And there was a reward poster. In fact, just outside of the barber shop was a reward poster. Wanted, dead or alive, Martin Luther. You would go to a barber back then, not just to cut your hair, 
but also for a shave. They would have these, these blades that were long and could slit a person's throat easily, which is why you went to a professional barber for this. And lo and behold, Peter was the barber's name. I'm not sure how, what the German version of that was, but Americanized Peter. And out his window, he sees Luther walk in. And he recognizes Luther without a doubt. And he tells him to hold on a minute while he finishes his person he's working on now. And that guy leaves. Luther sits down. And Peter wrestles in his mind with what is he supposed to do? He could be a rich man here if he would just slit Luther's throat. And instead, Peter, who loved the Lord and heard Luther preach before, decided that he wanted to be rich in a different way. And so he asked Luther a question while he was shaving. He said, Luther, I've heard that you are a great man of prayer. What is your secret to praying? Because Luther responded and said, I often pray for an hour a day. And Peter asked, what is your secret to pray an hour a day? Because I can't even imagine praying an hour a day. I feel like I would be richer if I could pray an hour a day. And Luther had a twofold answer. His initial answer was, what makes a good barber is being devoted to focusing on the task at hand, namely my face. <laughs> um, so his first answer was, go ahead and hold on to that question for another 10 minutes or so, which you can appreciate if you were in Luther's chair. When he was done being shaved, he told Luther, or Luther told Peter, this is the best question I have ever been asked. Which is an interesting response because he's had another 10 minutes of sitting there to think about it. He says, this is the best question I've ever been asked. Normally, he said, after I preach, people come up to me and ask me theological questions. They're asking me questions about the sermon. But you're asking me how you can grow in riches. So you deserve a rich answer. And Luther said, let me get back to you. And left him there. <laughs> and so poor Peter had his chance to take Luther's life, lost that, had his chance to learn about prayer, and has nothing to show for it. Months went by. No sign of Luther. Eventually, Luther returns. And out of curiosity, raise your hand if you know what Luther brought with him. Does anyone know, know the story? Taylor, I'm not calling on you, but <laughs> praise the Lord that you know. Luther comes back and brings him a book that he wrote to his barber. And he published it. And he brought his barber the first copy off of the presses. It's called A Simple Way to Pray. And you can still buy it today. Yeah, you can probably get an online version. I'm sure it's in the public domain now. Copyright 1535 in Germany. <laughs> a Simple Way to Pray. Dedicated to... Master Peter, Luther calls him, the masterful barber who wanted to be rich in the right way. Luther's answer to Peter, very simple. Actually, surprisingly simple, but he spends a book to develop it. There's four things you need to do to pray well. First, you need to memorize the Lord's Prayer. Second, you need to memorize the Ten Commandments. Third, you need to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And fourth, 
You need to pray through those things. That's what you do. And so how does that look? I mean, and Peter said right away, I mean, as, as he, he's talking to Luther with this, he says, Wait, am I supposed to just repeat this prayer? Because well, that won't take an hour. You learn those things, you can, you can recite them all by memory in three minutes. And Luther says, no, what you do is you memorize them and then you pray through them. And this is why, by the way, on Sunday nights that we do the opening prayer at the beginning of the service the way that we do. I read the scripture passage and then we pray through the scripture passage. The prayer is basically the content from what we just read, but applied to, to us. You know, so you can think, just to use an example, our Father who's in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so your prayer might look like, God, you are exalted above us. We are not you. We don't have access to the knowledge that you have. We have limited knowledge because you're in heaven and we're not. Nevertheless, we declare that you're holy and we're not. And we pray that your will would be done here on earth. And you start praying about the things that are in your mind in relationship to God's will being done on earth and conforming your will to God's will. And that's just the first sentence of the Lord's Prayer. Do that through all three of those things, Luther says. Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. Now I say that because as we get into Daniel 9 tonight, this is one of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. It's one of the longer prayers in the Bible. And it is certainly called out here as an example of how to pray. I think this is why it's inspired and given to us. And what's noteworthy about it is how much of Daniel's prayer is just praying through two different scripture passages. He's praying through a section in Jeremiah 25, He's praying through a section of Deuteronomy 25. And that's basically the content of his prayer. But he works his way through it. Let's look at this prayer more closely tonight. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, and this is likely Cyrus. Uh, I think Darius is probably the title. We talked about this back in Daniel chapter 6. By descent of Mede, Remember the two horns that we looked at last week that were of unequal sizes. The, the Medes are the ones that combined with the Persians, but Darius was more clever and the Medan horn grew bigger. He was king over the realm of the Chaldeans. He'd conquered the Babylonians in the first year of his reign. Now this is the year that Daniel was betrayed by the king's advisors, was trapped, and was fed to the lions. I mean, he didn't get all the way fed to the lions, but you know what I mean. They passed the rule that nobody can pray except to King Darius. Darius signs the rule. Daniel then throws open his window and prays. And, you know, when we looked at that chapter, we made the point about how significant it is that Daniel had integrity enough to pray. He wouldn't alter his prayer patterns, which are obviously well known because they thought they could trap him. Nevertheless, it's worth thinking, what was going on that year that would drive Daniel to pray in that way? And this is where Daniel, I think, answers that question. It's the same timeline. I, Daniel, in the book of verse 2, perceived... In the books, or scrolls would be a better translation of that, the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what he's saying here is that he was studying Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote at the beginning of exile. Jeremiah was writing when Daniel was alive, by the way. Dan Jeremiah has since gone away. The book of Jeremiah was uh, completed well before Cyrus was king. What's fascinating about this is that in that short time period, you know, we're dealing 70 years here have gone by, Jeremiah's already recognized as scripture. 
And you should file that away in your mind for your liberal friends that say the books in the Bible were chosen, you know, by committee in, you know, 320 AD and they, you know, got in a smoke-filled room and said, you know, I'll give you second John if you take out third Peter kind of stuff. I mean, that's just nonsense, nonsense. And you have examples, it's the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes Luke and calls it scripture. Peter quotes Paul and calls it scripture. Here is an example of Daniel, a few decades after it was completed, reading the prophet Jeremiah and recognizing it, identifying it as scripture. It's the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah. And beyond that, Daniel is not just reading it. And you need to keep this in mind for next week, by the way, because when we get to the, the 70 weeks next week, people say, oh, you know, what's wrong with you guys? You want to take out calculators and figure out the end times and, you know, calculate the number of, of days between this and that. And we, this is exactly what Daniel does with Jeremiah at the beginning of the passage. He's studying Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 11. Let me read it for you. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. After 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation in the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares Yahweh, making the land an everlasting waste. Daniel's studying this, and he's getting out his calendar, and he's doing some math here, and they didn't have the years like we have years. So this is actually a little bit of work is the point here. It wasn't just like, you know, 1976 minus 70 equals 1906 kind of thing here. You have to actually add up the king's reigns. Know how long they reigned. Add the numbers together and arrive at this. And Daniel's studying this and it's occurring to him, this is about the time. Exile should be over. And of course, Jeremiah goes on to write one of the most misappropriated verses in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, verse 10, thus says Yahweh, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you the promise and bring you back for this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for your welfare, not for your evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you will call upon me and pray to me and I will hear you. Admit it, you guys have that bumper sticker and that poster in your room, don't you? Were you in Babylonian captivity? Take it down. No, I'm kidding you. <laughs> Don't rip it off your dentist wall. It's okay. But just know that's the context of this verse where God says, 70 years are going to get up and at the end of 70 years, I will take you back to Israel because I have a good plan for you. God's plan for the Israelites was not to leave them in Babylon. I think the punishment for a coach that uses that verse in a halftime speech should be 70 years in exile, personally. All right, one year for every time he uses it. Now, why 70 years, by the way? Why did Jeremiah say 70 years? Why does Daniel arrive at 70 years? And that's from Leviticus 25. For six years, you will sow your field. For six years, you'll prune your vineyard, gather its fruits. In the seventh year, there will be a Sabbath for a rest for the land. It'll be a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field. You shall not prune your vineyard. So work the land for six years, seven year, don't touch it. Let the things grow naturally, eat that. Store up your crops for the six years, eat that like Joseph did in Egypt. I mean, this just conceptually is a very good plan. Economically, it's a good plan. You should have savings in your account. If you get to a situation in life where you're able to save, rather than get the, the nicer car, why not save a little bit? And this is a very good principle in life. Joseph demonstrated it. It's written into the law. Work for six years and leave your land for a year. Let it rest. This is good in an agricultural sense so you don't over utilize your land. It's a command to them. 
And on top of that, every 49 years or seven sevens, which remember that we'll, we'll see that again next week. Leviticus 25 verse 10 says, the 50th year after the 49 years, the seven Sabbaths, you'll proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It will be a year of jubilee for you. Everybody goes back to their property, which was given to their clan. The 50th year is a jubilee for you. You'll neither sow nor reap what grows in itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. It is a jubilee. It's holy to you. Eat the produce of the field. And this year, the jubilee, you shall return to your own property. The Israelites are supposed to price their land that way. You know, you sell somebody your, your house or your farm in the first year, it's worth a lot because he gets to live on it for 49 years. You sell it to him 49 years since the last year of Jubilee, it's worth a quarter because he gets to live in it for 10 minutes and then he's got to go back to you. I mean, their whole system, their whole structure, their whole theocracy, the way the whole Old Testament law, the Levitical law was supposed to work, hinged on the Sabbath years. Slaves were released after they had worked for six years. All, sla- all Israelite slaves were released in the year of Jubilee. All property went back to their families. I mean, this is a massive economic structure built into the Levitical law that Israel kept exactly zero times. And so God punishes them for it. He punishes them. He says, you're not going to keep the Sabbath? Fine. Then you will be in exile. They were in the land for 490 years. And so they will be in exile for 70 there you go, my friends. Sort it out there. Second Chronicles 36, verse 21. To fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the years that it lay desolate, it kept its Sabbath to fulfill the seven years. So if you're taking notes, Second Chronicles 36, 21, that's the verse where it connects the two. The Sabbath years, the year of Jubilee, brought together with Jeremiah's prophecy about the exile. Daniel has all of this. He's putting it together and it dawns on him, this is the time. And so Daniel says, God says we're going back to our land soon, this year sometime, next year maybe, soon. What should he do? Should he pack his bags? Get some travel brochures? After all, God has said it's gonna happen. What's amazing about this is what Daniel's response is, is that he prays for it to happen. And that is a staggering point about the sovereignty of God in prayer, isn't it? Daniel's response to knowing, to realizing that God says this is going to happen. His response, okay, I believe you, Lord. This is going to happen. What should I do? Go and pray about it. And pray that God will do it. And this is the prayer we read about. It's saturated with scripture. It begins in verse 5. Well, in verse 3, it begins with desperation. Before he even prays, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He fasts. He looks disheveled. He puts the sign of mourning on him. And isn't this happy news? Isn't this great news that the exile is about to be over? No, he approaches this from a mournful position because he wants God to know that the sin of the people still breaks him. Seventy years might be enough to punish the, the people for, for neglecting the Sabbath, but 70 years does not atone for sin in a heart. And Daniel knows that. Seventy years does not make his heart less sinful. He's repentant, even though this isn't even his sin. He was a boy. From his desperation comes to adoration, verse four. I pray to Yahweh, my God. He begins his prayer. This is the the ax model of praying. 
You know the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Daniel follows it here. He begins with adoration. He says, I begin to pray to Yahweh, my God, and make confession. But before he gets the confession, look what he says. O Lord, the great and awesome God. This is our Father who art in heaven. This is the first commandment. Have no other. There is an, I'm the God who brought you out from Egypt. Have no other gods before me. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts with adoration. Notice that he also starts, this is gonna be important for the end of the sermon here. Notice that he also starts with a conditional phrase. That God keeps covenant, his said is the word, covenant love with those who love him and, and here's the conditional phrase, keep his commandments. Did Israel maintain their covenant relationship with God? No, they broke it by refusing to do the Sabbath. So God has subjected them to the curses of the commands, not to his covenant love, not with his steadfast love because they did not keep his commandments. We love to talk about God's love is unconditional and there's a sense in which it is, but there's a huge sense throughout the Bible that God's love is extremely conditional. Clearly in the Mosaic covenant. He will give them this covenant love if they keep his commandments, which the Israelites didn't do. So he begins with desperation, then to his adoration, not a confession. And he's gonna follow confession, verse five, all the way down through verse 15. One confession after another. And I'm not gonna read it all again to you, except for verse five. Look at all the synonyms in here. We have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, <laughs> we've turned aside from your commandments and rules. He's got, he's got a thesaurus out there. He is broken about their sin. He begins with God, you're holy, and then goes right into confession. Verse five, verse eight, verse 11, verse 15. The first word of this in verse five, by the way, we have sinned. That word is repeated in verse eight. It's repeated in verse 11. It's repeated in verse 15. It means it's the normal Old Testament word to miss the mark. It's the word from the, the Benjamites who could hurl a rock and split the hair. Sin is failing to do that. Sin is aiming for God's glory and missing. Sin is being a fallen creature. It's not being perfect. It's the generic word for sin. If you have, if there's moral daylight between you and God, you have sin. That's this word. We are sin, sinners. We have sin in our life. All have sinned, the scripture says, and fall short of God's glory. That's the reality. That's the generic term. Then he moves on to the word that's translated here for done wrong. Sometimes translated wickedness. It's used again also in verse 15. It's the word that's used in 2 Kings 20, verse 35, when the prophet comes to Israel and says, you guys are going into exile because you have done wrong. You've acted wickedly. Look at this next word, rebelled. And that's the word used in verse five. It's repeated down in verse nine. The end of verse nine, we've rebelled against him. That's a common word used in the Old Testament in the Torah for the Israelite rebellion in the wilderness. They revolted against God. This is not a small word. This is open rebellion against God. And so notice the funnel here of, of Daniel's description of sin. Generically, you're not God in your morality. More specifically, you're doing bad things. More specifically, you're rebelling against God. That's the nature of sin. Sin is open rebellion against God. It's wanting to be God and not God. 
And saying, if I was God, I would do this my way, so I'm gonna do it my way. That's the nature of sin. It is rebellion. You know, the punishment for rebellion is death. It's a capital crime, even in the United States. That's this word here. And I hope, brothers and sisters, I hope that you see your sin as rebellion against God. Anything less than that is just, it's just mamby-pamby language. I mean, in my house, we don't let our kids, when they apologize to each other, ask for forgiveness, we don't let them say, I messed up. I made a mistake. You may not use those words. Sin is not making a mistake. Sin is not messing up. How often as adults, that's the way we apologize though, isn't it? Oh, I messed up on this. My bad. No, that's not what sin is. Sin is rebelling against God. How bad is rebelling? It's what happened in the wilderness. The Israelites were in the wilderness. They rebelled against God. God opened up a hole in the ground and swallowed them. So they would learn not to complain. They would learn not to be sexually immoral. These things happened to them. They were sexually immoral. And God had snakes go into the camp and bite them. God had a lance spear some of them. These things are recorded so that you might learn not to be sexually immoral, so that you might learn not to be complaining against God, so that you might learn not to be covetous like some of them were, or grumblers like some of them were. That's the word for rebellion. And then, this last phrase in verse five, turning aside from your commandments. That's an animal word. The animal gets out, gets out he escapes. He runs away, he's supposed to be on the path. See you later. We have a neighbor who lets their dog out, train the dog with those electric shocker things. Now lets the dog out and for the longest time, the dog doesn't have a collar for the longest time, the neighbor just has to say, hey, Jag is the dog's name. Hey, Jag, shock, and Jag comes back. But Jag has learned now, he's learned that when he hears the word shock, it's not all there. And he has a look in his eyes. I can see the look, even from my window. I can see the look in Jag's eyes where he's sizing it up. Should I run or should I stay? And if there's a deer back there, forget about it. Jag is Wiley Coyote style. Just a roadrunner, I guess, is the run that runs. Just the puff of smoke, gone. That's this word here. That's what sin does. It is turning aside is a small minor thing. It sounds like in English. No, it's the puff of smoke. It's gone. It's the look in your eye. It's I know I'm supposed to stay. Thank you very much, God. I'm out of here. I'm going to run my own way, chase after what I want to chase after. That's this word. It's used here in verse 5 and again in verse 11. By the way, in the Septuagint, this word is translated into Greek as the word for apostasy. This is the concept of you just apostatize. You're done with being in God's family and you are out. Another word used later on this for... Sin here is verse seven. Down in verse seven, it's a word for shame. Repeated then in verse eight. You see it more clearly in verse eight. To us, so Yahweh belongs open shame. That's the right response to sin. New Testament says it's shameful to even speak of the things that non-believers do in the darkness. This is the concept of sin. Righteousness rejected. Rebellion desired. Going off to the wilderness. 
And so Daniel prays through that. And Daniel, we're not going to go through this whole text again, but Daniel owns the sin. He takes it personally. He says it's his. Remember, he's not, this is not all his sin. He's doing this corporately for his people. He's repenting on behalf of the Israelites. So many of these Sabbaths were before he was born. Assuming he went to exile at 14, maximum math here, Israel missed two of them. And he was too young to even care. Yet he is owning these sins. The shame is his shame. The fault is his fault. He is owning it. He is there in this sense, federal head. He is the one who is representing Israel before God in their covenant. Well, he moves through adoration, confession, thanksgiving. He gets to supplication here down in verse 16. And you can skip down to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath be turned away from your city of Jerusalem. This is his first request. Not until this last part of the prayer does he get to what he's actually asking for. And what's he asking for? God to not be angry with them anymore. The crux of this request is for God's glory. And he repeats the phrase over and over again. Look at the end of verse 19. It's because of your city and your people who are called by your name, he says. I mean, the main motif here in these four verses of supplication is he wants God to be glorified. And he's telling God, I want you to be glorified. Lord, how glorified would you be if Israel was rescued? Then everybody would know. Everybody would know that you're the true God. Contrast with shame. We're ashamed of our sin. That's because it destroys the presentation of your glory to the world. We want you to forgive us of our sin, remove your anger from us so that your glory can be magnified. The crux of this request is for God's glory. Verse 18, it's an incredible line here. He says in verse 18, we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. This is Christianity 101. You can't highlight that point enough. You can never be good enough for God to hear your prayer. You can never be strong enough for God to respond to your requests. And God doesn't answer prayers from strong people. He doesn't answer prayers from good people. He answers prayers from broken people. He answers prayers from sinners. He answers the prayer of the person who beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not the prayer of the person who says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these sinners. This is repeated time and time again through the scriptures. It's not simply a new covenant concept. This is everywhere. God's favor is on Hannah. God chooses David. Time and time again, this is what God does. Woe to the person who thinks God will hear him because of his righteousness. Woe to the person who thinks God will hear him because he deserves it. What arrogance. Brings you back though to the main dilemma here in this passage is why is Daniel praying for something that God's decreed? This is a passionate prayer recreated, you know, revealed in scripture for us, but it is for something that God has already said he would do. And I think you really need to wrestle through the tension here. And I see the tension most clearly down in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. There's that word again of wandering away, bolting like the animal, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. That is the issue right there. They have violated their covenant with God. 
Now, why would God give Moses a covenant that comes with curses? Is that a blessing? Leviticus 26. There God says that blessing comes with keeping his word, but if the Israelites reject it, God will turn his face against them. But earlier, I think I said it's Deuteronomy 26. It's actually Deuteronomy 28 is the part that Daniel's praying through here. Let me read you. This is five verses from Deuteronomy 28. This is the voice of Yahweh at the end of Deuteronomy, reiterating his covenant with them. If you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, or be careful to do his commandments and his statutes that I give you, then these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What curses? Deuteronomy 28, 16. Curse you should be in the city. Curse you'll be in the field. Curse, you'll be, curse your basket will be. Curse your, your kneading bowl. In other words, your, your harvest will be lame and your bread will be spoiled. Curse, curse will be the fruit of your womb. The fruit of the ground. You won't be blessed with children. You won't be blessed with, blessed with crops. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock, they'll be cursed. Your livestock, your farming will decrease. Cursed will you be when you come in. Cursed you'll be when you go out. You can't run away from this curse. Yahweh will send on you curses, confusion, frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. That is the Mosaic covenant. Now there's blessings. God will give them rain. God will hear their prayers. God will give them children. God will increase their crops, increase their animals. But it's connected there. It is a covenant and it comes with blessings and cursings. And by the way, I'm just five verses. That's all of Deuteronomy 28. It goes on and on if you're familiar with that chapter. There's a lot of curses in there. So Israel, by virtue of their relationship with God, is in a covenant that demands obedience and that punishes disobedience. That's the issue. Why does God work that way? And why does God give the, did God know that Israel is going to break the covenant? Yes. But he gives it to them anyway. And you can go back further. Does God know that there's going to be punishments for rebelling against Abraham? Yes. Does he know that people will do it? Yes. Does he give those punishments anyway? Yes. Or the Noahic covenant. Or here's the most clear one. Back in the garden with Adam. Adam gets to stay there and eat and be happy and have a family if he keeps God's word. If he doesn't keep God's word, out into the wilderness, work will be hard, family will be hard, life will be hard, and you will die. <laughs> There's a tree. Why, I mean, why does God put a tree in the garden if he has to tell him not to touch it? Why does he put another tree in the garden? He has angels guard it. Why does he do that? And do you notice this is just about every covenant in the Old Testament. They're all conditional in that sense. They all come with conditions. If you keep them, you will be blessed. If you reject them, you will be cursed. And this is, this is not a minor theme in the Bible. This is repeated over and over and over again. And you have to understand this, I think. If you understand this properly, it lets you into the heart of God. God reveals his work through this world through these kind of conditional covenants because they set up redemption. God brings his kingdom into this world through this kind of conditional covenant because it brings redemption into this world. By Adam rejecting the covenant, God gives him the promise in Genesis 3. The, the devil will have his head cursed, crushed by the Savior. By the world rejecting Noah's preaching, God 
curses the world and gives a testimony to us that God knows how to rescue those who place their faith in him. By giving punishments for going against Abraham, God isolates Israel and produces a nation that will be distinct from the world around it to bring us the Savior. With Moses here, the curses for rejecting the law of Moses is that you recognize that God gives wrath to people that reject him, but he will always extend forgiveness to those who turn to him. This is where Daniel is. This is where Daniel is, is living right here in this covenantal dynamic that if God gives you a covenant and you break it and you receive the curses, God remains yet a savior. He remains a savior. You rejecting his covenant, it does not get you off the hook. You get the curses, but it doesn't change the character of God an inch. God remains a savior by nature even when his people reject him. And I think this gets you right into the heart of God because this shows you what is going on within the Trinity before the creation of the world, that there is a covenant within the members of the Trinity. There is a design within the members of the Trinity to bring salvation to the world. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have a shared will, a shared plan, and they are going to create the universe to bring the Savior into the world. And by the way, when the Savior comes to the world, do you know what he comes through? And he brings the new covenant. <laughs> he brings a new covenant, which is different than the old covenant. In the old covenant, Israel was a kingdom of priests, but they weren't all regenerate. The new covenant, the church is a kingdom of priests, and we are all regenerate. The new covenant in that sense is also a conditional covenant. It's conditioned upon perfect obedience, but Christ is obedient in our place. There are blessings and cursings in the new covenant, but the blessings come through Christ. The curses come through him as well as the curses were poured out at him on Calvary. And Daniel's gonna learn more about the nature of the new covenant in the next few weeks. <laughs> but right now he's standing here as the federal head of Israel praying on their behalf. I mean, in the same way a husband can cause harm to his whole family by being sinful and stupid, and it affects everybody in the family, even those who don't have the sin. So Daniel here is under the effect of the sin of those who led Israel before, but he steps up determined not to do it again. And so he prays through these covenants. He prays in light of the conditional nature of a relationship with God. Even the word we love back earlier in verse four has said, God's covenant love, that implies those conditions that God is showing us has said, his covenant love for those that keep his word. And now Daniel is saying, Lord, I, I want to keep your word. I repent of the sin. I repent of our nation's sin. I want you to minister to us, restore us to the land. It cannot happen, he says in verse 16, unless you turn away from your anger. There is no salvation unless you remove your anger first. God cannot save unless he first deals with his anger, verse 16 says. And his anger is righteous anger. It's not sinful anger. And that's why Daniel is wearing sackcloth. Do you get it? That's why he's in sackcloth with ashes on his head is he's pleading with God, take your anger, which we deserve, take it from us. Take it from us, not because we're good, but because we're wicked. But I wanna be pleasing to you, Lord. He says, look, verse 19, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. That is the cry of his heart. Please forgive, Lord. For your own sake, because of your own city. In the new covenant, what does this look like? 
There's a sense in which sin can plague a church. There's a sense in which corporate sin can bring spiritual effects on a congregation, even though that they didn't participate in the sin, that they allowed it in their leaders. That's certainly true. But I think the more direct application of this is that Jesus stands in our place. That we have a conditional love with God and it's conditioned upon faith in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, he meets all of the conditions. He meets the moral perfection by providing it himself. He meets the obedience to his law by completing it himself. We too are a kingdom of priests, but we're a kingdom of regenerate priests. (laughs) So this prayer of Daniel serves as a model for us on how to pray through scripture. It serves as a model of confession for us. And it should fill your heart with joy. The nature of our covenant is not like the covenant of old. Our covenant with the Lord, it's new and it forgives us of our sin. Let me pray for us now before we go to the Lord's table. Lord, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful that you show us mercy in Christ. You have met the law's demands. As the hymn says, you have quenched Mount Sinai's flame. You have washed us with your blood. What the law demanded, the Israelites strove for and failed and received its curses. But then you provide in our place. We don't have to keep your word to earn your love. We receive your love freely because Christ has kept the command in our behalf. We're grateful, Lord, that you are a savior by nature. That in the mind of the triune God has been a plan of redemption and this plan, this, this covenant has been worked out through the ages. You came to Adam with blessings and curses. You made a covenant with Noah. You made a covenant with Abraham. You made a covenant with Moses. You made a covenant with David. And now we gather around the Lord's table tonight to celebrate a new covenant, not like the old. The old covenants have become obsolete. Now we are one family with you in Christ. So Lord, purify our hearts. We give you thanks for the joy it is to eat at your table. You are the bread of life. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.